Hey guys, um, my name is Daniel and I'm a third year physiology student and um, today I'm going to be reading from Judges chapter 3 verse 7 to 31. Um, the, I think the booklets that you guys have have the wrong title on there, so it's 7 to 31. So, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of the Cush, of the Cushan Rishathim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out for the Lord, he raised them, he raised up to them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved who saved them, who saved them. Uh, the spirit of the Lord came to him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subjects to Eglon, king of Moab, for, 80, for 18 years. Again, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with a tribute to the to Eglon, king of Moab, and now Ehad had um, had made a double-edged sword with a, about a cubit long, and he strapped it to the to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute. <coughs> he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehad had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who were who carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king, went to his, the king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. Ehab then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from you. I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, he had reached into his left hand, uh, reached with his left hand, drew the sword with the, from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank into the, uh, in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to went out. Then Ehud went out to the porch. Um, he shut the doors up to the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors to the room, they took a key and unlocked it. There they saw their lord fallen on the floor dead. While they waited, Ehad, went, Ehad got away and uh, he passed by the stone images and escaped to Syria, Sarah. 
When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fort of the Jordan that led to Moab. He, they allowed no one to cross. At the time, at that time, they struck down about ten thousand Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for eighty years. After um, Ehud came, Shamgar, son of Onath, who struck, who struck down six hundred Philistines with an ox gourd. He too saved Israel. Well, there's lots of great things coming up uh, at CU uh, in the near future. So with Faithful Thinking and uh, the sports stuff and uh, mid-year conference, there's a lot to get excited about. Uh, I should let you know as well about the Faithful Thinking stuff. If you do need a lift, um, hopefully you've got one of these or you can grab one off me afterwards and you can just fill it in. Tell us if you need a lift and we'll sort something out for you. So there's lots of great stuff happening. Uh, get excited. Uh, it's going to be excellent. But I think, uh, for me, one of the things I find difficult about being a Christian is that my feelings often don't match up with reality. And you know, an atheist might say, well, see, that's what we've been telling you this whole time. You know, you've got these feelings of closeness to God and uh, you know, being near him or some kind of spiritual reality, but it's all nonsense. It's not reality. Your feelings don't match up with reality. You might feel like Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. But it's not true. But that's not my problem. (laughs) In fact, I think that's 180 degrees around the wrong way. See, I'm actually convinced, and I think there's very good evidence, that all those things are true, that Jesus... Uh, did come, that he is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead. Uh, I'm convinced that there's good historical evidence for all of that. Not to mention the incredible unity of the Bible across nearly 40 authors over more than a thousand years. No, it's not the reality that's a problem for me, it's my feelings. Uh, We were talking about this in a quick common hour last night, uh, talking about the issue of identity. And we were looking at Ephesians chapter 1, uh, where, God's, where Paul says that God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That we're chosen by him, we're adopted as his children. We're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're marked with the Holy Spirit. And I know that's true, but my feelings often sort of lag behind. Now, it's possible that that's just me, uh, that... I am not a particularly emotional person. I don't tend to just sort of get teary. Uh, although, if you catch me during Les Miserables, uh, you'll find me blubbering like a maniac. <laughs> but I suspect that it's not just me, and that for many of us as Christians, uh, those of us who are Christians, that the problem for us is that the feel doesn't match the real. What we feel is not always what we know to be true. And it's not just how we feel about ourselves. It's often how we feel about Jesus. 
Because I know what he's done for me. I know that he's God the Son come in the flesh. uh, That he's lowered himself to be born as a human. Lowered himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And that he has risen from the dead. The conqueror of sin and death and the devil. Who rules forever as God's king and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. I get that. I know that. I'm persuaded. But... If I'm, often, if I'm honest, I'm often not quite there with it in my feelings. I don't always feel particularly excited about that. I know it's wonderful. I know it's incredibly important. But, frankly, I'm more excited by Star Wars or James Bond, which is probably showing my age a bit. But do you ever feel like that, where your feelings don't quite match what you know to be true? Don't quite match up with reality? Well, uh, if you have ever longed to read something exciting, something riveting, something totally attention-grabbing in the Bible, to feel the excitement and to feel the adrenaline of a, a sort of James Bond movie of Star Wars, then this is your lucky day because we are working through Judges uh, today and over the next few weeks as well. And the book of Judges is awesome. There are dastardly villains. There are unexpected heroes. There are great leaders undone by their fatal flaw. There are daring raids and stunning victories against the odds. And it's an incredibly good read. Uh, there are times when, yeah, it's, it's very graphic. Uh, it's very violent. And if you read the whole of Judges and don't leave with a sick feeling in your stomach, then you're not hooked up right. It's... It's a graphic kind of book, but it's incredibly exciting. And I reckon that the story we're coming to today uh, is the best story in Judges. In fact, it's probably my favourite story in the whole Bible. It's the story of Ehud and Eglon. And it is a story to rival Star Wars or James Bond. The left-handed Israelite assassin versus the grossly obese king of Moab. Uh, So we saw last week that um, throughout the book of Judges, there's this cycle that goes on and on. Israel's disastrous circle of life. Uh, And we've seen it with Othniel here in verses 7 to 11. And now we get to it again in verse 12, where the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they do this evil, the Lord has handed them over to their enemy. Now, with Othniel, he handed them over to an enemy up in the northeast. But now with Ehud uh, and with Eglon, he hands them over to an enemy down in the southeast. He hands them over to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Eglon has formed an evil alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. And all these nations are Moab, Ammon, Amalek... They're all actually distant relatives of Israel, but they're relatives in highly disreputable ways. Uh, So um, we've got uh, Moab and Ammon, who are the uh, the sons of Lot, Lot being the nephew of Abraham. They're the sons of Lot, but the sons that Lot had with his daughters. So um, got it here. This is Genesis 19, verse 36. Uh, 
His Lot's daughters couldn't find any blokes around. They just fled from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, they can't find any blokes to marry, so they decide to get their dad drunk and sleep with him. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son and she named him Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites today. Not a great start to your career as a nation. Uh, Amalek was the grandson of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And uh, Amalek was the offspring of Esau with his concubine. And in the book of Numbers, we find all three of them, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, all engaged in a conspiracy against Israel. They hire a sorcerer by the name of Balaam to try and put a curse on the nation of Israel. God won't let them, but the Israelite men do end up getting sucked into sexual immorality with the Moabite women, and they end up worshipping the Baals. So Israel despises these nations. They, they're disgusted by them. They look down on them, the Moabites, the Ammonites and the Amalekites. But actually they've ended up just like them. They've been worshipping the Baals, the, the local idols, instead of the true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord. And so God has given Israel over to their enemies. Israel are a conquered people. They've even lost Jericho, the city of the Palms, the first city that they'd conquered when they came into the Promised Land. And for 18 long years, as long as some of you have been alive, Israel have been under the power of Moab, Ammon and Amalek. And life is miserable. The galactic empire reigns supreme. But, unbeknownst to Eglon, the king of Moab, the Lord has raised up a small band of rebels struggling to restore freedom to the galaxy. Well, kind of. He's really just raised up one guy. So verse 15, again the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. And here's a question for you that you can discuss amongst yourselves. Why do you reckon the author draws attention to the fact that Ehud is a lefty? Why don't you, just with the person next to you, see how often it comes up in this passage that he's left-handed. And um, why do you reckon that is? So, go for it.
Alrighty. How many times do you reckon it comes up that he's left-handed? Anyone? How many times does it come up, do you reckon? Twice? Yeah, it's explicit twice. I think it's implicit three times because it talks about him strapping the sword to his thigh, uh, his right thigh, in verse 16 as well. Anyone got any theories on why it's sort of mentioned so frequently that he's left-handed? Seems like a, a trivial, unnecessary detail. Why is it mentioned so often? Any theories? God loves left-handed people more. God loves left-handed people more. Uh, clearly not right. Yeah. Uh, any other theories? He didn't have a right hand. He didn't have a right hand. <laughs> That's, that is possible. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Okay, so maybe God's saying, no, no, he's not an evil lefty, he's okay. <laughs> yep, could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Be just because they would have searched his right, like they would have searched him as if he was a right handed person and be like, okay, no. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the theories that comes up is that maybe. Uh, what happens is he's able to smuggle the sword in because they kind of pat him down on the, on the left-hand side where you'd normally have your sword, but not, they don't bother with the right-hand side. But there's nothing about that in the story. It's possible, but it's not mentioned. Here's what I reckon's going on. Uh, I reckon that it's because while lefties aren't evil... Neither are they your typical square-jawed heroes. So they're a a bit like redheads, really. Um, (laughs) So, you know, we've we've had black-haired James Bonds, we've had brown-haired James Bonds, we've had blonde James Bonds. We will never have a redhead James Bond. Because, come on, I mean, really? A ranger? It just wouldn't be right. And, if you'll pardon the pun... Left is not quite right either. <laughs> Thank you, I'm here all week. <laughs> Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in that culture, your right hand is for eating and doing clean things with. Your left hand is for wiping your backside. It's the less honoured hand. Uh, It even comes through into our language via Latin. Uh, In Latin, your right hand, right is dexter, dexterous. Your left is sinister. Hmm. (laughs) And we still talk about our right-hand man, things like that. The left hand is just less honourable. But here's the real kicker. What tribe does Ehud come from? Benjamin. Anyone know what Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. Yeah. Benjamin means son of my right hand. My right hand son. But Ehud is a left-hander. 
There's something not quite right about it. Not that it's evil. It's just, he's just not your typical hero. <coughs> and uh, by the way, if you've been looking at this picture here of James Bond and thinking, but James Bond is left-handed. No, of course he's not. <laughs> I had to flip the picture. <laughs> James Bond is not left-handed. <laughs> but Ehud, the left-hander, is not your stereotypical hero. He is not your platonic ideal of a deliverer. He's not James Bond. He's not a double O. He's not even a big shot in Israel. He's from a small tribe and he's sent as the messenger boy to do the job that is too demeaning for anyone else to want to do. He's got the job of taking Israel's tribute to the enemy. He's like the Jew who has to take the gold to Hitler, gather it up from the people, take it to Hitler in the hope that he'll let them live. And yet, lefties of the world rejoice, there is more to Ehud than meets the eye. You knew that, didn't you? Uh, He may appear to be a nobody, a nothing, not the right kind of guy, just a boy working on the moisture farms of Tatooine, But secretly, our Luke Skywalker has been making his own lightsaber. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. So a cubit's about the length of your forearm, uh, and he's made his own sword. And our Luke Skywalker travels to the heart of the Galactic Empire to present Israel's tribute to Eglon, who kind of turns out to be a sort of Jabba the Hutt. Uh, He's a very fat man, feeding off the suffering of Israel. Uh, Ehud's gone with a group of Israelites, but at this point, after he's delivered the tribute, he sends them away and he goes back to Eglon himself, on his own, right into the heart of the evil empire, into the very throne room of the king of Moab. And he says to the king, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. And Eglon, uh, turns out, hasn't watched enough movies because he makes the classic mistake. He sends everyone else out. He says, leave us alone. And they all leave. I mean, what has Eglon got to fear, after all? He's the mighty king of Moab. He's on his home turf. He's in his own palace. He is Jabba the Hutt versus this farm boy. And Ehud approaches. I have a message from God for you. And as the king rises out of his seat, he draws his sword with his left hand and he plunges it into his gut. And the sword, although it's as long as Ehud's forearm, goes right into Eglon. Right in. And he's struck with such force that even the handle sinks in. And Eglon craps himself. His bowels discharged and Ehud lets go of the sword and he pulls out his left hand, his bum-wiping hand, covered with the dung of the king and leaves the sword stuck in Eglon and the fat closed in over it. Isn't that a great story? Don't you love it? (laughs) It is a fantastic story. But it hasn't finished yet. Ehud has killed the evil king. But it's almost as though nothing has happened. The fat has closed in over the sword. It's kind of hidden. 
And Ehud does a runner. He locks the doors and he gets out through the porch. The king's attendants don't know what's happened. After Ehud has left, uh, the servants come, they find the door locked and they can't see inside. They don't know what's happened, but they've still got their noses and they can smell and it doesn't smell good. And they're kind of, you know, they don't seem too surprised by that. I mean, I guess Eglon's a big guy and probably eats a lot. And, you know, they're familiar with the horror of Eglon's bowel movements. <laughs> so they wait outside. They're just kind of shuffling around, you know, doing that awkward shuffle that people do when they're wanting you to get off the toilet so that they can use it. And they're sort of waiting around outside. Oh, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. And we're told that they just wait and wait and wait to the point of embarrassment. Like, seriously, how long does it take? Like, what is going on in there? Like, I told him not to eat the curry. <laughs> Man, this... Oh, fellas, this, this is a bad day to be a servant of the king of Moab. <laughs> seriously, it smells like someone died in there. And eventually it gets beyond a joke. Eglon doesn't come out. So they grab a key, they unlock the doors... And there they saw their Lord fallen down dead. And not just dead, but dead in the most humiliating way possible. With a sword buried in his gut, covered in his own filth. Sword stabbed deep into his own blubber. Eglon is beached as. (laughs) And meanwhile, Ehud is far away. He's back in his home country where he sounds the trumpet and the Israelites descend from the hills and he commands them, follow me for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. Israel streamed down from the hill country. They secure the fords across the Jordan and they plough through into Moab, taking down the Moabite army as they go, 10,000 Moabite soldiers. It is a devastating victory. Moab is shattered. And the people of God are victorious. And the land had peace for 80 years. Now that is a cracker of a story. That is a sensational... uh, It's like Star Wars or James Bond. And it's actually true. (laughs) But what's it doing in the Bible? What's its purpose? Why is it there? Is it there to tell Christians how they ought to behave? Like, is this how you treat your enemy? Like, make your own sword and, you know, especially with fat enemies, you plunge it right in? Is it a political philosophy that this is the way you can treat tyrants, that it's appropriate to assassinate them? Or is it a model for kind of asymmetric warfare? This is what you should do if you're ever sort of occupied by the enemy, kind of like the ancient equivalent of suicide bombing? What is the point of it? Well, it's there to remind Israel of what God has done. To remind us of what he's done. Of how the Lord has saved his people. That in spite of their sin, in spite of this cycle that's going on in Judges, that God actually rescued them. He delivered them. He's that kind of God. A God who is gracious and kind to his people. But it's actually doing much more than just pointing back to 
to what God did back then, it actually points forwards another thousand years to what God did through another man who, like Ehud, wasn't obviously important, uh, no one special, just from the tribe of Judah, an important tribe, the tribe of King David, but this guy himself was not sort of in the royal palace or anything like that. Yet he was God's chosen deliverer. In fact, he was God the Son himself, come in the flesh. But to most of Israel, Jesus was not the right kind of deliverer. He was your kind of Ehud sort of guy. You know, he's, he's just kind of the son of a carpenter from the back blocks of Galilee. He's no one. He's not a king, although he is from the line of David. He's not a military leader who will destroy the Romans and scatter them from the promised land. He's just a guy, just a guy called Jesus. But this Jesus is an unexpected deliverer from the Lord. The unexpected deliverer from the Lord who is the Lord himself and who took on the job that was too demeaning for anyone else to do. The job of paying the ransom. Paying the ransom for his people. And along with a few others who were travelling with him, 12 of them, he went right into the heart of the evil empire. Not into Moab, but to Jerusalem. To the city of the rulers and authorities who have been opposing God and who have been getting fat off the people of Israel. And at the critical moment, Jesus sends the rest of them away and he goes on alone right into the very heart of the empire, into the very throne room of evil itself, into death, into hell on the cross. And there, on the cross, Jesus plunged the sword into Satan and Satan crapped himself. At the very moment that Satan thought he had won, the very moment that the Prince of Darkness thought he had finally won the ultimate victory, Jesus defeated him forever. Paid our ransom, not with silver and gold, but with his own life, and broke Satan's power forever. Humiliated him. Made a mockery of him on the cross. Broke his power to accuse us, his power to hold us in slavery to the fear of death. And on the cross, Jesus set God's people free. He emerged again victorious from Satan's inner sanctum, from the realm of the dead, having won the victory for his people. But not everyone knows it. There's still people outside just kind of shuffling their feet wondering when their gods are going to turn up and rescue them. When finally, whatever god it is that they worship will deliver them. And the longer they wait, the more uncomfortable it becomes. And you think, there's a a disturbing lack of activity on the part of my god. Where is he? What's what's he going to do? When's he going to show up and deliver me? The nagging feeling that Maybe he's never going to show up. The nagging feeling that there's the stench, the stench of your own death. 
waiting for their gods to deliver them, while ours already has. Because Jesus has burst forth from the grave to sound the trumpet, to proclaim the good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, freedom to those oppressed by sin and death and the devil. And he commands us to follow him, to join him in plundering the enemy, not by killing people, but by proclaiming the good news to them. By proclaiming the good news that he has won the victory and so snatching them from the dying hands of Satan. Inviting them to share in the peace that Jesus has won for us. Not for 80 years, but for all eternity. And sometimes we don't feel very excited by what Jesus has done. They say familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes we do sort of feel that, don't we, if you're familiar with it. You know the story, maybe it feels a little bit ho-hum. We've lost some of the excitement and the joy and the awe of what Jesus has actually achieved. And Judges helps to remind us of the reality, of just how incredible it is what Jesus has done. That the gospel is riveting, that it's an epic cosmic adventure. Action-packed, gripping, the greatest story ever told. And it's true. J.R.R. Tolkien once explained to the then atheist C.S. Lewis that the gospel is the true myth. It is the story that is at the very heart of history and the very root of reality. And that all the other stories that we come up with, James Bond, Star Wars, whatever, they're all just our work as sub-creators, made in the image of God, sub-creating under him, creating a secondary world of our own imagining. But they all derive, says Tolkien, in some way, shape or form from the gospel, from the true story, the true fairy tale, where the creator of the whole world brought his story into history where the true story entered the primary world. And it was that conversation that opened C.S. Lewis's eyes. For the first time, he grasped that the gospel was real, that the things that he delighted in, the hopes and aspirations that he had, actually found their fulfilment in the gospel, the true story of what God has done for us in Jesus. God's great eucatastrophe, to use Tolkien's phrase, his wonderful overturning of the established order, his overturning of sin and death and the devil through his son to set us free and to bring us into his kingdom forever. And that is what Judges is all about. It's the prequel. It's the shadow. It's the true stories that points towards the true story. And it's there to help us feel the excitement the joy, the awe, to be caught up in the amazement of what Jesus has done. Our unlikely saviour, our unexpected deliverer, who went one-on-one with the prince of darkness and plunged the sword in to set us free, who emerged victorious and who invites us to rejoice, to share in the joy of his victory and to share the joy of his victory. Judges helps us to line up the feel with the real. Shall we pray? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for Jesus and we thank you for the way the book of Judges points towards him and helps us to reconnect our emotions and our feelings with what uh, you have actually done for us in Jesus. We pray that you would fill us again with the excitement and the joy and the wonder of what you have done for us in Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.